cliffcentral.com. All right, it is time for us to get into Democracy 101. We're going to check out what's going on in this important part of our week where we also catch up with all the things that are happening ahead of the elections. And I think a lot of people are particularly concerned about where to get their news. So since we've already um, kind of opened the subject for discussion in the first hour of this morning's show, I thought it was probably appropriate and a good idea to get someone in who can help us understand and navigate our way through some very complicated waters. Camilla Bath is a seasoned journalist, news editor, consultant, and trainer. She's got more than 20 years of experience in global news and the media landscape around it. She's also a board member of the World Press Institute. Currently, she spearheads diverse training initiatives for journalists worldwide, particularly in Africa and Europe, focuses on AI integration, which is all the rage at the moment. Also, broadcast journalism, fact-checking, and that's a whole controversial thing all on its own. Mm -hmm. She's an accomplished broadcaster herself. She's anchored primetime radio and news bulletins for EWN on 702. Also contributed gratefully and significantly uh, to the establishment of the TV news channel, Newsroom Africa. So it is a great pleasure to have Camilla Bath on the show this morning. Hey, Camilla, how are you? Good morning, Gareth. I'm very well, thanks. How are you doing? Good morning, Camilla. Yeah, nice to you. Good um, morning, Jack. Jack and I are very excited to have you on because as part of Democracy 101, we're, we're sort of giving ourselves and everybody who's joining us on this journey a bit of a crash course in the basics around how, you know, democracy, politics in general, elections, um, educating yourself uh, to, to make sure that you're not bamboozled by politicians, all of that stuff. We're trying to package it in a way that will help people to make sense of the world. It sometimes feels like nothing makes sense. And especially, I think, in a world where we are worried about the sources of our news, we're worried about whether something is true or not. And there are so many people out there just vying for our attention, billboards blasting at us every five seconds from our devices all over the world. Uh, there, are, there, are, there are campaigns which are being financed by interest groups. Uh, we cannot get away from advertising. We cannot get away from political messaging. And frankly, the news has become a subject of contention, which maybe it never was before, or maybe we were just naive enough to believe it never was before. But it's hard to find out what's true these days, right? Absolutely, Gareth. And, you know, I think uh, the, the, the main challenge that we're dealing with at the moment is almost a surplus of information. And, and the real issue there is that you have both true and false information um, mingling and mixing and coming at you at a million miles an hour. Right. So I always talk about um, the, the, the sort of information cycle at the moment, the, the news cycle that we always used to be used to was either, if you were in print, maybe a weekly cycle. In broadcast, uh, in, in TV news, it would have been a daily cycle. You had one news bulletin a day. Uh, in radio, maybe it was an hourly cycle, and, and that felt really fast. But these days, what we're dealing with really is, I think, what's called a news cyclone rather than a news cycle, right? There mm. is 24 our 365 publishing, we have uh, information coming at us literally like a fire hose. If you just imagine mm. standing in front of an enormous fire hose uh, that's gushing water in your face, right? Uh, you're never going to be able to take a meaningful sip of that water. And you might well die of dehydration just standing in front of that fire hose because it's coming at you so fast. And so my idea around what media and journalism is here for these days is actually 
rather than trying to add to that fire hose uh, and just spit out more and more and more information, is there a way that we can channel some of that water off to one side and say, here, audience, this is what you need to drink. Take a sip from this and you'll be perfectly hydrated. Um, and I think the role of media as a result of this sort of information overload uh, that we have is changing. And people don't trust the news as much as they used to. It's a fact around the world. Um, well, and we I need mean, to be isn't, isn't, it. I mean, part of that is also the news's, the news's fault, right? Absolutely. It's the news's fault because, because so many news organizations have prostituted themselves to whoever has the money or whoever's politically powerful. And we're not talking about South Africa necessarily, but all over the world we see this. And the news organizations that we used to trust, uh, trust in inverted commas, also have become echo chambers and have become partisan and give us the info that we want rather the info than the info that is true. Yeah, so I mean, I think I think there are a couple of things uh, going on there. Num number one, uh, you know, the barrier to entry for publishing and for being a news voice has dropped so much in the last few years um, mm -hmm. as a result of increased digitalization, right? You're seeing a plethora of news sources um, or people portraying themselves as credible news sources who perhaps aren't respectful of or bound by the principles of journalism uh, as we understand it from inside the craft, as it were. So you do have this mingling of voices. Um, you do have as well the financial imperative that's been coming into the newsroom increasingly, certainly in the 21, 22 odd years that I've been uh, in the news, if you will. Um, I have seen a marked shift uh, of of this financial imperative. Newsrooms are being forced to talk about money in ways that we never had to before because the advertising model is failing. We haven't yet found a better model to replace that. You know, everyone's trying a bit of everything, but, but many newsrooms are, are really struggling financially. Um, and as a result of that, we we have this conversation that is now happening about clicks or views or viewer numbers um, and, and this pressure on journalists to keep those in mind. And, uh, you know, you're, you're breaking down that Chinese wall between editorial and sales um, as a result of that. And I think people are then, well, there is a space perhaps that's being opened up for more partisan coverage or more sensationalist coverage because there's that drive, that added drive to get eyeballs on sites um, to ensure that things are sustainable. And, and that really starts to undermine the, the reason for being for journalism, as I'd call it. Mm -hmm. um, you know, like, yeah, to, to me, journalism really should and does boil down to one simple thing. Uh, and that's pe helping people make better choices in their lives. That's what journalism is for. Uh, we are advocates for our audience and, and our main role really is to try and help people make better decisions. Uh, we don't report on a traffic accident because we want them to rub a neck. We report on a traffic accident because we want them to perhaps be able to make a different choice about which route they take to work. Uh, we don't report on elections because we support a particular party or, or are pushing a certain agenda. We report on them in order to equip people with the information that they need to make a better choice at the polls. And that, that cornerstone of journalism, that kernel of journalism, sometimes is being eroded now as we see the financial imperative uh, start to become more prevalent right. in our newsrooms.
but you know, Camilla, truth be told, um, as as much as you have that imperative uh, as journalists, uh, you still have lives to live, right? You still have to pay your own bills. You you still have to uh, drive to work. You're gonna have to somehow travel between one place and the other. How do you go about finding the balance between uh, communicating or at least taking your imperative seriously to? inform the public, but at the same time keeping uh, a close eye on the fact that you have to get these views in order to generate uh, some sort of an income? Yeah, I mean, that, that's, that's, the, that's the tough question. And, and, you know, Jack, if I had an answer to that, I think I'd, I'd be a, a multi-trillionaire by now, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, my, my, my net worth would be bigger than the South African GDP. Um, unfortunately, the, 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 you use the word balance there, and I think really it is a balance that we need to strike. It's difficult to uh, ignore the commercial interests, and it's difficult, to, and I think it would be foolhardy to pretend uh, that those don't come to bear. Um, but I think the, the real trick in a way for journalists is to be aware of those things, to be aware of how they might impact us or influence the way we might behave, and then to actively fight against that. Um, yeah, there, there, there's no better solution to me than that. When, when the, the so, reality is that we need to put food on the table, absolutely, mm. but we have a duty to our audiences. And as long as we keep them central, um, I, I really do think that we may, are able then to make better decisions than not. So, Camilla, uh, the elections are coming up, and obviously political parties, by hook or by crook, try to get coverage. They try to get exposure because for yeah. them that's very valuable. It'll, it'll maybe persuade a few voters. We're entering probably the most important election that we've had in this country since 1994. There are a lot of people contesting it. There are many different interests in uh, how this election will pan out. Many of us are pinning a lot of hopes on it. Um, how do journalists go about trying to safeguard the news from politicians who are trying to propagandize everything and from an audience that probably is already kind of bored with politics and saturated with political messaging? Um, how do you keep it interesting without making it trivial and silly? And, and how do you keep the politicians at bay? Because that's a, a, a huge problem, is the way that they try to inveigle themselves into news stories by saying something controversial. Uh, we know how many lazy journalists there are who just use Twitter as a source for things. So they go and they find something that they know is clickbait, and it's, it's going to get the, the views that, they, that they're under the pressure to, 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 to get for the, the business of the newsroom to work. And then they'll report on whatever's the most controversial, the most attention-getting, the most clickbaity, even if it isn't the most valuable information. Yeah, so I mean, I think those are two separate issues in some ways. So let's deal with the uh, the politicians first. Um, mm. And of course, we're going to see increased rhetoric leading up to the elections. You're going to see inflammatory opinions. Uh, you're going to see politicians really doing whatever they can uh, to get into the news cycle. Um, and sadly, as we all know, uh, what really sells is outrage. And so many politicians are going to start speaking in very uh, inflamed language, uh, and they are going to start trying to provoke outrage or other strong emotions in people uh, and in journalists, because that's what guarantees them news coverage. Um, and I think right from the beginning of a news cycle, certainly in all the elections that I've covered uh, over the years, um, 
the, 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 the real key is firstly strong editorial leadership from the beginning, strong editorial decision making around what we will cover, what we won't cover, uh, strong ideas around balance and equity. I mean, by law, uh, in an election cycle, uh, newsrooms are required to give equitable coverage and balanced coverage to political parties. Uh, so we do need to reflect diverse views. We do need to make sure that we are giving airtime appropriately to different organizations. That doesn't mean equal airtime, though. So mm -hmm. in terms of um, the, the if, if you think, for instance, of the ANC, which the opinion polls will tell us at the moment, might get somewhere between 40 and 50% of the vote in these elections. Uh, whether that's going to be higher or lower, we, uh, we, we really can't say for sure. But, you know, a, a party as significant and heavyweight as the ANC, as we all know, will get significant, significantly more coverage and airtime than, for instance, a one-man band who uh, is is perhaps lucky enough to get 20,000 votes. Do you know what I mean? So we can't dedicate the same amount of airtime or the same amount of print space um, to the tiniest of parties as that we do to the largest of parties. So we do have to be quite judicial in that, if I can put it like that. We have to keep balance and equity in mind, but then also be sure to be again, being advocates for our audience. We have to ensure that our audiences are getting the information that's going to be most useful to them. Um, so it's a balancing act that one has to strike. And, and I think it's also important as journalists, you know, often what we leave out is as important as what we include in our news bulletins, and sometimes more so. Um, and so there are certain decisions that one has to make about uh, politicians who've perhaps crossed a line uh, into hate speech or into some form of um, mis or disinformation. Um, and we need to actively work against that um, and keep that out of the news cycle. Firstly, because it's law. We can't pr publish hate speech, for instance, but also because we want to um, responsibly use the position that we have to curate information for people and to make sure that they're hearing the valuable information rather than just whatever is put in front of us. That's he said. Yeah, but then who, who determines what is the valuable information and who determines what is mis or disinformation? We've seen a lot of controversy in America around what was considered mis and disinformation when it came to COVID. Mm -hmm. A lot of what ended up being true was branded as mis and disinformation by the powers that be, the people who supposedly know better than the rest of us. Turns out that they were completely wrong. They were deliberately misleading people, which is misinformation, disinformation. That was coming from the supposedly trusted sources. And the rest of, of, of the people who had a different point of view were demonized and sidelined and very often on social media banned outright mm. for having a different point of view. So how can we trust these editors and these people who once held a position of prominence and of credibility in society when they've let themselves and the rest of us down so badly. Yeah, well, Gareth, once again, if, if, if I had the answer to that question, I would be the happiest person in the world. Um, the issue of trust in journalism is 
enormous at the moment. It can't be and it can't be overstated. Uh, around the world, we are seeing audiences losing trust in news organizations, um, either because they are starting to see behind the curtain and realize that we're just humans, just like everyone else, or they are starting to see in the in the less scrupulous newsrooms that they are being actively manipulated or misled. Um, and the trust issue is one of the biggest factors to my mind in this election year, not only here in South Africa, but around the world. I mean, we've got half the world's population, as many as 4 billion people going to the polls this year. So it really is a bumper year for democracy in a lot of mm. ways. And, and journalism is really important uh, to, to my way of thinking in terms of supporting that. Um, however, in terms of trust, we do have audiences who are less accepting of our um, of our reporting, shall we say, as as credible or truthful for a range of reasons, um, and and I think the onus is on us as a profession um, to fight really hard to bring people back on our side, uh, and and here of course I'm talking about credible newsrooms that subscribe to basic journalistic principles like independence and fairness and balance um, mm -hmm. and minimizing harm. Um, what, what, to me, the only way that we can do that is transparency. Um, the real challenge for us in a strange way as journalists now in this digital world that we have is to become human. Uh, we have to become human enough for people to understand that we're doing what we're doing, not because of a particular agenda uh, or because we want to hoodwink them or mislead them, but because we genuinely care passionately about democracy. I know I do. And I can tell you that all of my colleagues who I've worked with in newsrooms in South Africa are in exactly the same position. But we need to invite people into that process. We need to be transparent about how we do our journalism, how we corroborate facts, how we um, will identify mis and disinformation, how we make our editorial decisions in terms of what we amplify and what we don't. Camilla, I just wanted to find out, like, you know, a lot of um, professional jobs have got some sort of oversight committee or that kind of thing. Um, with when it comes to journalism, are there any checks and balances, or are we as the public, you know, just just trying to figure this stuff out ourselves? And if we come across something that is blatantly false, uh, perhaps go to uh, take the 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 journalist to court or that kind of thing. Or is there some sort of a body that that makes sure that journalists uh, adhere to the principles that you were talking talking about? So the short answer is yes, there are bodies like that that exist in South Africa. The two most important ones um, are ICASA and the Broadcasting Complaints Commission of South Africa. Uh, and these two regulatory bodies um, between them, we also have the press ombudsman. Um, so I should probably talk about those three. So in terms of broadcasting, uh, the Independent Communications Association of South Africa, ICASA, and uh, the um, uh, Broadcasting Complaints Commission of South Africa, the BCCSA, have oversight over broadcast media. Um, and they are in a position to sanction, so to rule against and then punish um, broadcast media for... Uh, transgressions. Um, and then on the other side, you have the press ombudsman who is also uh, responsible for um, print complaints, if I can put it like that. Mm. Um, and so we do have regulatory mechanisms in place, 
But the big thing to remember is that journalism by and large is actually a self-regulating profession. So we fight very hard, in fact, to remain as independent as possible and to not have, for instance, a government oversight. There's a lot of talk in South Africa uh, about the Media Appeals Tribunal, which would be a government oversight body that would oversee uh, the press in South Africa. Um, and I, I'm not hugely well-versed in that, but there is concern around how that might uh, affect our independence and the way we do our jobs. Um, and so what really becomes incumbent on journalists and journalism uh, is to self-regulate. So when we get it wrong, we apologize. Um, if we don't apologize and one of the bodies uh, that oversees us uh, does uh, finds against us, we are forced to apologize. Um, but by and large, we have to regulate ourselves. So I thought this was an interesting point being made by um, by Congo Chris in the comments. He says the, the problem in mainstream media is twofold. Firstly, you've got media houses who are increasingly political and narrative oriented, particularly hard left leaning. Secondly, there's conclusion shopping by the audience. I like that term conclusion shopping, mm -hmm. as in, you know, we like the answer that you'll get to at the end of this. We want to hear your reasoning so that we can argue better with our friends who disagree with us. But we're not really interested in the nuance. Yes. And, you know, I think conclusion shopping potentially also uh, goes to audience behavior in terms of hopping from channel to channel until they find a conclusion that they agree with. Right. Um, so like for, for, for every expert, you have an opinion and for every opinion, you have an expert. Um, and I think um, we you talked earlier about echo chambers, Gareth. And I think uh, I think people are programmed in terms of confirmation bias to seek out information that shores up their existing opinions. Right. Um, and and. Audiences have this plethora of sources that they can go to uh, to find information that they already agree with and that shores up their opinion. Um, and I think, yeah, there's 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 value in um, becoming more savvy uh, information consumers. I think we all need a bit of media literacy almost in this new digital world uh, in terms of how we assess sources, how we um expose ourselves to information um and and how we counter our own biases i mean i think one of the important things that i often say to journalists i train for instance is we've got to be aware that we are all biased uh we talk a lot about unbiased journalism yeah. about objective journalism these are fantastic north stars for us but they're never going to be achievable. Objectivity, to my mind, is a myth. I don't think one can be truly objective, and I don't think one can be truly unbiased. We all come with a set of biases, whether it's mm -hmm. from how we were raised, the people we hang out with, where we went to school, whatever it might be. And I think it's really key to be aware of our own biases uh, and to actively try to counter them, to expose ourselves to other opinions, um, to expose ourselves to... Um, information that we don't necessarily agree with um, right. because it's it's almost to me part of responsible citizenry. Okay, so uh, one of the big examples we have and, and you know, we thought that the machines and, and, and AI would be our savior in this respect that, you know, these things would give us finally the, the long-awaited objectivity that we'd always been promised. And in, it turns out, I mean, especially in the light of a very embarrassing situation Google had to deal with last week when they launched their 
Gemini AI image generator, um, which which showed to everybody, even people who were half asleep and didn't know what AI was, that even these AI algorithms and the coding that goes into them is hugely heavily politically biased. And that the people who are programming the AI are as dangerous as if the AI itself were able to think purely in terms of, of one side of the political spectrum. Um, it, it almost appears, and Google, of course, has the biggest database of information that anyone has ever had at their disposal. And yet this Gemini seems to have churned out such absolute nonsense that it's humiliated itself to the point where Google have had to withdraw the whole thing, apologize publicly, whether or not they can actually change things is a whole different story. But actually going ahead with something that was bound to be such a disaster proves that the people, the Silicon Valley people, who we all thought were going to be the smartest, the best, the ones who would lead the way for us, they're shown to be just as useless as the people in some backwater newsroom in a third world country. <laughs> well, you know, I think the principle one has to keep in mind uh, when it comes to artificial intelligence. And, and I've, I've been sort of dipping my toe into these waters quite a lot in the last few years because, uh, you know, I'm interested in how it's going to change journalism and how it manifests in journalism. But I think the real principle to remember uh, when it comes to AI is this idea of garbage in, garbage out. Uh, mm -hmm. An AI is only as trustworthy and as capable as the data that it's trained on, the information that it learns from. Uh, and the absolute fact is that the data and, and information that is available, particularly on the web, um, is hugely skewed uh, towards a Western perspective and is affected by all of the biases that we see in everyday society. So if you have an AI that is trained on false data, um, you're going to have problems with that AI, like we saw with Gemini, uh, like we saw, for instance, uh, with Amazon a while back uh, and their hiring policies. They trained an AI uh, to sift through um, CVs to surface more likely candidates for them to hire. They thought it would be good. Uh, it would. Uh, it would uh, speed up their hiring processes, right? Um, but very soon they realized that what this AI was doing was handing them overwhelmingly skewed white male candidates. Why? Because the AI was trained on the data of previous hires in Amazon. And uh, the vast majority of those previous hires, surprise, surprise, had been white males. And so it learned to the, the, the AI learned to prioritize um, factors that shouldn't have been there in the first place. But that, but was, but that, was, okay, but that was true. That, that was true. I don't want them to give me a vision of how they'd like to see the future. I want them to give me what is true. I don't need some college graduate who studied Karl Marx to tell me how they think they'd like the world to look through their AI generator. I want them to show me what the world looks like. And that means if you put a picture of the founding fathers of the United States up, it's not gonna be like some dude from Bengal and a guy from the Congo. These are not the founding fathers of the United States. That's just blatantly untrue. It's fantasy. Yeah. Yeah. And so once again, one has to be aware of bias. And that to me is the key, is that we need to be aware that AI is as biased as the data it's trained on. Um, and 
obviously we don't want it making up its own facts. We don't want it becoming political, if you will. Uh, we don't want it leaning left or right. We want it somewhere in the middle, but we've got to be aware um, that the historical data that it's trained on is going to perpetuate bias rather than fight against it. But, you know, it's, but it's not the job of journalists to be fighting bias. It's the job of journalists to be reporting the truth. Yes, yeah, so, so I was talking specifically about AI there. And um, for AI. And for AI. It's also the, it's AI's job to reflect some, some version of what is actually true, not to give us some fantasy. But AI can only reflect what it's given. It's not conscious. It's not self-aware. Right? It and can't so, make so a decision on what is true or not. Well, it needs to look at what the information, please. I mean, Google, for example, has this incredible insight into everything on earth. The, the, the great vast mass of human knowledge is available to Google in all of its forms, video, pictures, audio, writing, pretty much all of human knowledge is stored there. All that Google has to do is reflect on balance the very best of what human beings have achieved for it to politicize with DEI, a kind of version of history that just isn't true, is not helping anybody. In fact, what it's doing is it's making all of us go, right, time to move away from Google. Yeah, well, well, you know, I think, yeah, it's so difficult though, isn't it? Because do, when we say that, um, the, that AI should reflect the best of humanity, the best of humanity according to whom? Once again, we are flawed and biased entities. Uh, this is a bit of a philosophic, uh, philosophical I, debate, uh, but to me it's a really interesting one that uh, one, one doesn't always know where truth lies and truth can mean different things to different people. And so one has to think very consciously, and again I'm no AI expert, I'm interested in its applications in journalism and how we can potentially use it uh, as a tool in the journalism belt, um, but I do think we need to be very aware of its inherent biases uh, and we need to be aware of the biases of those creating the AIs and we need to be aware of the biases contained in the data that those AIs have access to. You know, there's there's so many um, news outlets that we, <clears throat> excuse me, that are, you know, popular and some not so much. And how, how would you advise, uh, I guess, the average Joe where to get their news from? Uh, as you guys were discussing a second ago about uh, the impact of AI on journalism, like how, how does anyone find any level of truth in the middle of all of this information that's just flying around? Oh, Jack, it's a great question. And, you know, I think, um, I think again, I'm going to sound like a, a, a broken record here, but I think it's really important, first of all, as a first step uh, for us as media consumers to be aware of our own biases, yeah? So be aware that I like this kind of reporting or I like this kind of outlet uh, for a certain reason. Um, and, and, you know, I think some of us are more or less aware of our biases, but it really is important to, to, to think through them carefully and at least be aware of where your own position is. What is the uh, information that you are looking for? And then in some ways, I think it's really valuable to actively seek out outlets that will challenge your existing beliefs as well. Um, so to me, what I look for uh, when it comes to uh, when it comes to news organisations or journalists who I decide to uh, engage with or, or whose 
content and opinions I value. Um, I'm I'm looking for um, firstly the facts. Yeah, um, I mean. It, it's it's almost easier to answer the counterfactual here in terms of of what what I look what I don't look for or what really pushes me away, right? So if, if I encounter a news organization um, or a journalist that has a scarcity of facts, um, hmm. I get really worried. Yeah. So if it's more opinion and analysis rather than facts, um, I start to immediately question. Um, if I get the sense that that a news organization or a journalist is trying to make me feel a certain way rather than think something, again, big red flag for me. I start moving away. Um, I look for people who use evidence to back up assertions, who include facts, um, and who leave me to make up my own mind. Uh, you know, it's the old principle of show, don't tell in journalism. Don't mm -hmm. tell me how I should feel about something. Show me the evidence and let me make up my own mind for myself. So I I steer, a, when, I, when I encounter problematic content, I automatically start steering away from those individuals or organizations, but I don't shield myself from credible organizations that don't happen to be reporting the set of facts that I agree with. I think it's really important to expose ourselves as well uh, to opinions and, and, and ideas that we don't agree with so that we better understand uh, our own positions. So the, the tough question, and this is something that people ask me, and I'm in no position to offer advice because I don't know that I've got it right. But where do you get your news? Like, where do you... Mm -hmm. What are you, Camilla Barth, as somebody who, you know, you kind of have a, a greater part of the responsibility than most of us because people will ask you this and expect you to be the, the, the person who knows the most, and, and you are, and that's why we're having you on this morning. Who do you listen to? Who do you pay attention to? Where do you get your news, and how do you ensure that you get that diversity of opinion as well as all the facts? Because, again, these days, you know, even the facts are in dispute. We hear, hear people saying, well, are those your facts or mine? Which is outrageous yeah. and ridiculous. Yeah. I mean, opinions are one thing, but you would think that we could at least come to terms on things like gravity pulls things down. You know, <laughs> these, are, these are now controversial things. <laughs> where, do you, where do you get your info? You know, so so I I approach news gathering, I suppose, in a slightly different way because I'm a journalist myself. Um, and I... You know, so so I'm not active on Twitter at all myself. Sorry, I should call it X. I really should. I'm not active on X at all myself. Um, I don't uh, feel the need to sort of throw my opinion out into the void whenever I feel like it. But I do find it an enormously useful tool for passing the news because uh, a lot of Twitter, a lot of X is journalists talking to other journalists. Uh, and a lot of it is politicians as well. And I have... Uh, meticulously curated over the years a couple of lists on Twitter of people I uh, respect. Uh, many of them people I know. You know, I'm, I'm also in the in the in the fortunate position that I know a lot of the journalists uh, who are active in South Africa. Um, and and so you know, I, I I sort of have a read on on in which ways. Uh, they approach the news and and in which ways they might be biased and and in which ways that might sort of counteract my own bias, if you will. Um, mm -hmm. So I, I curate my information very carefully on X. Um, 
in order to sort of take that uh, that enormous fire hose for myself and and um, and get a little channel to sip. I suppose uh, I'm also a huge fan of slow news rather than fast news, if I can put it like that. I like a, a perfectly baked loaf of news rather than a quickly fried pancake. Um, so I go for a lot of the long form journalism. I find the Daily Maverick, for instance, a hugely useful resource in a lot of ways. Um, it, it would be one of my go-tos uh, for in terms of coverage. Um, a lot of the outlets that I've worked with and for over the years as well, I suppose, in terms of broadcast, um, yeah, uh, would, be, would be Newsroom Africa, Eyewitness News. I generally still uh, have an affinity with those brands. In terms of, of journalists themselves, well, I mean, yeah, there, there, there are a ton of them, um, but I think people who I specifically um, respect uh, in, in the news cycle at the moment, people like Ferial Hafaji, uh, people like uh, Tsidi Madia, um, Mandy Wiener, uh, Stephen Curtis, they're all people who I've worked with as well um, and and who who's thinking around the news I understand and, and respect. Um, but that's, you know, a tiny drop in the ocean of, of the news that I do try to consume. I visit as many news websites as I can every day. I watch as many TV programs as I can. I uh, consume international news as well as local just to get a read on the whole um the whole picture rather than just a picture that suits me. I think this is, this is helpful. Uh, uh, you know, I liked what you said about the counterfactual and rather knowing what to look out for that you should not be paying attention to, because there are so many opinions about why you should listen to this one or that one. And I don't think that really helps too many people to, to figure out because we also have limited time, right, Camilla? I mean, we can't be uh, following 300,000 different news sources. Um, someone tipped me off a while ago, and I mentioned this in the in the first hour of the show to Jack. Someone tipped me off uh, last year or the year before to an Indian news channel. Um, it's not state-run, but it's one of a number of independent broadcasters in India. And I found that their coverage of things like Russia and the Ukraine was a lot more nuanced, interesting, thoughtful. They paid attention to a lot more detail than we seem to get in the West or then Russia is trying to force down the throats of those people where they still have sway over yeah. the media. And I yeah. thought, what an interesting idea to go to India for news about Russia and the Ukraine. It seems almost um, like, you, you know, it, th th this, is, this is not, a, it's a counterintuitive way to behave, but it made sense to me once I saw it. And obviously all over the world, there are examples of people like that. You don't want to go to MSNBC to see them covering Joe Biden in a positive light. You don't want to go to Fox to see them covering Ron DeSantis in a good light. But somewhere in between, you're going to find people who can make sense of this stuff. Absolutely. And I think, again, it's, yeah, it's, 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 it's really about opening up one's perspective and investigating what is out there. Um, I love the idea uh, or the example that you give of, of an Indian newsroom, and that's because it's operating from a totally different worldview, a totally different understanding of what the world is 
and how it functions. And I think, you know, there, there is a big divide between the West, or shall we call it the developed world, uh, and the developing world. And I think, you know, so, so in some of the newsrooms that I've worked in, my um, argument as an editor has always been around what I call the Bangladesh test. So if something happens in the US, for instance, here in South Africa, uh, the, the, the fact of the matter is that we are very quick to jump on it and report it. Why? Because it's already being reported by CNN and the BBC and Fox and, 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 right? And we think, oh, well, we're going to be left behind if we don't pick up on what these major outlets are doing. Um, but the question that I often ask my journalists in terms of whether we include it in our own coverage is, well, if this were happening in Bangladesh instead of the United States, would it make our news cycle? And if the answer is no, we need to think very critically about whether, in fact, we should be including that in our news cycle. So it is worth it opening oneself up to other opinions, to other ways of seeing the world, because it, the risk is that you get stuck in a Western paradigm, that you get stuck in one particular way of uh, passing the news, um, and and you're shutting yourself off from, from tons of valuable information and perspectives. So, <clears throat> sorry about that. Uh, Camilla, I just wanted to ask, like, in 2024, a lot of things have changed from uh, what we used to think of them. Once upon a time, propaganda meant the same thing to everyone. Uh, mm. Nowadays, things have uh, taken a bit more of a sophisticated turn. You know what I mean? Back in the day in the States, uh, they spoke about ghettos and then all of a sudden it was an urban area as if white people didn't live in urban areas. But nonetheless, you get what I mean? Like the mm -hmm. the the subtle changes in language have, you know, kind of made us look at language in a very different way. How do we identify propaganda these days? Because, I mean, one term to you could mean something completely different to me. Absolutely. You know, it's such a, oh, it's a great question, Jack. You know, I, I do a lot of uh, training in um, so-called fake news, um, fact-checking and verification with journalists uh, in Africa. And this is a big topic of debate among journalists as well as uh, all of us here. And the, 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 the blurring line here that we need to be aware of is the line between um, propaganda, misinformation, and disinformation. Yeah, um, Often couched in this terrible term that I absolutely hate, fake news. We all know it uh, and it's used very colloquially, but I just detest the term fake news because it's a misnomer. Sorry, can we? Uh, news is news, yes. So let's just define these things because it might be helpful mm. for all of us. Absolutely. So what is, mis what is misinformation and what is disinformation? Right. So the key thing to remember about the difference between mis and disinformation is intent. It all comes down to whether someone intends to do harm with false information or not, because mis and disinformation both fall under the umbrella of false information. Yeah. So not news, not facts, <laughs> false mm -hmm. information. Uh, and mis and disinformation are different in that misinformation is all around um people who are spreading fake information or false information without any intent to cause harm. So, for instance, I mean, we've all got these WhatsApps uh, from our from our elderly aunt, who uh, warning of a tornado heading to our area, right? Um, 
our, our dear aunt is not sending that on because she wants to mislead us. She's not sending it to us because she wants us uh, to act on false information. She's sending it because she's received it. Perhaps she hasn't done the work to verify it herself, but she wants to share it with us just in case it's true so that we stay safe, yeah? That's an example of misinformation. Uh, information that is false, but is not shared with the intent to cause harm. Disinformation is the ugly sort of uh, brother or sister to that, uh, that is false information that is knowingly shared with the intent to do harm. Uh, and that harm might be to provoke strong emotions in people and, and get a certain reaction uh, to incite violence, for instance. Uh, the harm might also be just getting them to question um, widely mm. accepted facts uh, so, and, and, and spread confusion, so some kind of confusion. Um, so we need to be aware of the difference between those and ensure that we understand what mis and disinformation are and why they're so dangerous because misinformation spread without any intent to cause harm is every bit as dangerous as disinformation, even though what do we do with, with the people who do this? Because yeah, if it's your aunt, you don't want her arrested for, for spreading, you know, false information around. And there were a lot of people during COVID and, and every time there's anything that happens in the news is someone who sends some yeah. horrifying, frightening, advisory out you're like sos and everybody ducks under their beds but yeah. we don't want these people to go to jail they they, they might be well-meaning and then we see examples of how people are actually trying to influence elections let's get back to elections for a second yeah. they try to influence elections positively or negatively by spreading nonsense around about you know the number of people at a at a rally or uh, a a, a a riot that's going on somewhere where it actually isn't. And we saw even with the riots here in South Africa, we saw people spreading, you know, news about this is going on in Midrand. It turns out there was nothing going on. This is going on in KZN. It turns out there was stuff going on. Uh, this stuff can lead to actual harm as opposed to making someone feel bad. Where do you draw the line? So, I mean, I think when it comes to misinformation being spread by ordinary people, just like you and I, right? Um, there's an enormous amount of, of research going on in this uh, sphere at the moment. And, and the best available answer in terms of how to counter that seems to be to not take these people on in public forums. So for instance, if, um, if your aunt posts this warning in a big family WhatsApp group uh, with 30 people in it, taking her to task for posting that in that WhatsApp group is a very uh, dangerous thing to do in a way. It's a difficult thing to do because uh, your aunt is immediately going to get defensive because it's happening in front of other people. The best way to counter this kind of thing seems to be to reach out in private on a private platform and speak to the person concerned and equip them with the facts. Uh, if you have the facts to counter their opinion or their um, misinformation, um, equip them with those facts because very often you'll see people immediately climb down and apologize of their own volition. Not if we try to force them because then they become defensive, um, but often if we just say to them, this is actually not 
the case. And I've done this tons of times, by the way. I'm on a couple of WhatsApp groups uh, with that, that have hundreds of people on them, and I can't help myself when I see <laughs> when I see uh, misinformation being spread. Um, I used to always jump back onto that group and call it out on the group, uh, thinking, well, I've got to tell as many people as possible about this. Um, but it, it always led to a shutdown. Um, and I, I found it far more valuable, for instance, to message them on the side, just DM them quickly and say, look, thanks for sharing this, but here's what's going on actually. And, and, and you might want to consider this. And very often that would then lead to them of their own volition, uh, countering the misinformation uh, that they have spread. When it comes to bad actors, shall we call them, so people who are spreading disinformation and doing it intentionally, well, then I think, um, you know, we, we're seeing increased uh, legislation around how to deal with these bad actors developing around the world. And I think it needs to get harsher. And I think the consequences need to be clear uh, that if you actively try to mislead people or harm them in some way, that there must be consequences and you must be held to account. So, Camilla, uh, according to you, what does the future of journalism look like? I mean, recently, um, you know, Fox News got into a lot of trouble about... Uh, the 2020 elections saying that uh, I think they came out and said that this, the election was stolen and they were taken to court as, as a result and they lost the case recently. Um, and including the fact that a lot of people have become a bit disillusioned with uh, especially big media uh, companies where, you know, we don't always just trust when they say something. I mean, back in the day, we had uh, four in fact, three channels, and uh, we just trusted that what was said in the bulletin would be true, or whenever you'd pick up a newspaper like Sowetan or City Press or whatever it might be, whatever it is that you'll be reading, you would immediately assume that it was true. But over the years, we, the veil has kind of been removed from our, from our eyes, and we've seen just how muddled uh, media can be when it comes to uh, their alliance with the truth and their alliance with their money interests. What does the, the future of journalism look like? Yeah, so, uh, yeah, it's a jacket. I think when, when, when we look, I mean, I can gaze into my crystal ball. Um, sure. I'm not sure, <laughs> I'm not sure um, that I've got all the answers, but, but, but there are certain things that we're seeing that I think are, are, are valuable to keep in mind. Uh, number one is a pulling away from mass media. So there's a big discussion going on uh, in the media fraternity at the moment, globally, um, around people's pulling away from mass media um, and their interest more and more in local media. And I do wonder whether we're going to see the re-emergence of local media, which we know has been dying off for the last 20 or 30 years. I, I hope in a way that we see hyper-local media coming back. I think one of the big things that we've lost as, as the media and, and, and as newsrooms is a connection with our audiences, a real connection with them. We had that for so long in many of the newsrooms that I've worked in, uh, but that seems to be failing now. And I think in order for journalism to really function properly, we need to be deeply committed to, embedded in and connected with our audiences. And we can't do that if we're trying to cater to everyone all the time. Uh, and so I do wonder if 
the future of journalism is a more localized and perhaps a hyper-localized newsroom that reports on a specific community. I do also think that, and we're seeing it already, we're shifting more into a curation role. We, we are curators of news, we are amplifiers of news rather than the originators of news, right? It breaks on X before it breaks anywhere else. Uh, we are no longer the gatekeepers of facts uh, and media. Um, but I do think that we are now in a, in a position where we need to increasingly amplify valuable voices and underheard voices, and we need to curate the news for people and make it digestible and easy for them to un understand it. And again, it's, it's about very consciously um, thinking about how we serve our audiences. So I'll take it back to where we started. You know, I think, I think journalists exist to cater to their audiences. They exist to be advocates for their audiences and, and journalism exists to help people make better decisions in their lives. And I think perhaps that this uh, re-emergence of local news is an answer. I don't know uh, about the answer, but it, it, to me, it, it seems to be a plausible answer. Well, I saw a story in the news about Facebook and Instagram uh, owner Meta that has said that they'll form a team to tackle deceptive AI in upcoming EU elections in June. It's concerned by how generative AI, uh, which yeah. can create fake videos, images, and audio, might be used to trick voters. And that's a whole other thing. We talk about fake news. How about... How about just this, this complete deep fake situation we've got where you see someone who you do trust, um, someone who you think you know, and they're telling you that you've got to buy this crypto coin or something, and you know it's complete nonsense. Now, those people could easily, those, those, those people who are doing this stuff, could easily turn their nefarious skills to you know, having someone who people respect and love endorse something truly horrible in politics. Yeah, absolutely. And we're already seeing it in South Africa, by the way. Uh, I worked for a long time uh, with a journalist uh, called Francis Hurd. And Francis, mm. if anyone watches the SABC, is a well-known anchor uh, on the SABC. Yeah. And she was essentially cloned. Someone used an AI to create an avatar of her uh, and was able, because of the amount of footage that's publicly available of her, to perfectly clone her face uh, and her voice uh, and mm -hmm. get her to endorse products uh, that uh, Francis, I don't think having known her would ever endorse, for instance. Uh, right. We are already seeing this kind of sophisticated technology in South Africa and being weaponized in South Africa. And AI is going to be a big differentiator in a lot of the elections that we're going to see uh, around the world this year. It is quite terrifying in some ways. And the problem is that we don't actually have the tools yet to properly counter this kind of thing. So you do have some AI programs that can detect AI created elsewhere. Um, Gemini, for instance, for all its failings, does seem to be able to uh, detect um, if, if, if a video has been made with Sora, which is OpenAI's new generative video program, which is startling if you watch it. So, so we do have this almost cat and mouse game where we have a sophisticated AI able to create deep fakes. They are a reality and we need to be very aware of them. And then you have another AI playing catch up um, that, that might be able to detect these. But yeah. 
we are it's a cat and mouse game at the moment yeah it's a rock and a hard place i believe denzel <laughs> washington said it best that um if you read the news you are misinformed if you don't read the news you are uninformed it's 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 such a weird thing to navigate it's weird it is so weird that. yeah you choose your poison which would you yeah. prefer right. to be? <laughs> mm-hmm it almost it almost almost makes a case for the blissfully ignorant who keep their heads in the sand but i'm glad yep. that you were able to help us uh, wade through some of this very very difficult material because it is hard for most of us to understand and i think maybe i'm i'm cautiously optimistic that we'll figure out a way of discerning uh, in in more direct and and less labor intensive ways what is true and what is not but um, journalists have played their, their part in the past. The fourth estate is important. We want people to be able to challenge power, to be able to report honestly about what's going on and, and not to be influenced by the money and power of so many in society who wish to fill our daily feed with nonsense and with narrative. So I thank you, Camilla. It's really good to have someone who is, uh, is informed and, and helpful on this matter. And I hope we'll talk to you again soon. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Jack and Gareth, for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks, Camilla. Everybody. Very, very cool. And uh, we will be back tomorrow at uh, 6 a.m. for our special interview. You can check out that and a whole lot more on cliffcentral.com. Also, don't forget, if you haven't seen it already, to go and watch the Podcast Party special, Democracy Unplugged. You can find it on YouTube at Podcast yes, Party SA. That's featuring Mighty Jamie, featuring Penwell the Black Pen, and Siswem Pofu Walsh, and our moderator, Jack Mutlante, who is on your screen right now. Check that out and a whole lot more. We will see you tomorrow. Cheers, everybody. Bye bye. Cheers. Cliffcentral.com.